listening to Mastering Money, the Educator's Edition from Chartered Professional Accountants of Canada. We bring you the latest from thought leaders in financial literacy and behavioral economics to help you develop and deliver your financial literacy program. I'm Doretta Thompson, and today I'm speaking with Princeton-educated lawyer and financial comedian Jeff Kreisler. Jeff's the author of Get Rich Cheating and most recently co-author of Dollars and Cents, How We Misthink Money and How to Spend Smarter with Duke University psychology and behavioral economics professor Dan Ariely. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for dropping by. Thanks for having me. So the first thing I have to ask is lawyer and financial comedian, like really? What's with that and how did that happen? Uh, I didn't choose that phrasing, but it was a lot shorter than listing everything that I've done. Um, I've been pretty fortunate to uh, have a rich tapestry of a career, which is a nicer way of saying I've wandered around aimlessly for <laughs> many years. Uh, but uh, I wrote my, my first book, you mentioned um, Get Rich Cheating. And before that, I wrote a financial humor column for uh, thestreet.com, which is Jim Cramer's website, The Mad Money Guy. And now this uh, Dollars and Cents, which isn't a comedy, but it has some humor in it. So it sort of seems like financial comedian fits. Um, and lawyer... I thankfully have not worked as one of those in, in a long time, but um, once you pass a bar in America, you're technically a lawyer, you're branded for life. Uh, and, you know, it it helps um, establish that I have a certain way of, of, of thinking um, and legitimacy. If this, were a diff- if this were a different group, if this were, you know, a bunch of motorcycle uh, riders in, in a bar in, in deep in Texas, I probably wouldn't introduce myself that way. Do you get many invitations to motorcycle clubs and bars deep in Texas? Un- uh, amazingly, no. Not a single one. <laughs> so one of the things that is really important to us, for those of us who work with financial literacy, is trying to change the conversation about money. Money has become the last taboo. People don't talk about it. I actually had a priest say to me, people will talk about their sex lives before they will talk about money. And it's absolutely true. So why is it so hard for us to talk about money? There are a lot of reasons. One is that money um, is really hard to think about. It's hard to know what we should do. And it's also very emotional. Um, in part because of the uncertainty, in part because we don't know what we're doing. And there's also this sense that we have, it's sort of self-reinforcing, that because we don't talk about it, we think everyone else knows what they're doing, right? We look at our neighbors and we're like, oh, they're on track for retirement, uh, or they know what they're doing. They have a house. Everything's in order. And so we start to feel shame that we don't know what we're doing. That compounds the emotion that's connected to us. Um, and ultimately, money is, um, as I said, it's just so uncertain and it's so complex and it's so hard to really get into that to even open that Pandora's box we feel like is just going to display a level of ignorance that we don't feel like we should have. Um, But the truth is everybody has trouble thinking about money. Uh, Even the people that work in money and advise others. Um, As I mentioned on stage, I often will speak with like uh, wealth advisors and companies that are wealth advising companies will tell me their highest performers, those that advise others the best how to spend and save their money are the worst at spending and saving their own money, right? Because, uh, you know, when you're telling Joe how to plan for his college, his kid's college or his retirement, it's different than how you plan for your own college. That's emotional. That's like, oh, that's my kid. That's my future. Um, So everybody has a difficult time thinking about money. And I think, you know, one 
a solution for the fact that we don't talk about it is to help people understand that it, it's okay to not know what's going on and that everyone has that problem and that it is hard and make it like have less shame in, in that inability to make decisions. You've been working with Dan Ariely, who's done some really, really fascinating work on human behavior, or maybe we should say human misbehavior, <laughs> and specifically how it relates to money, which is really interesting. And you explore some of that gap in your book, Dollars and Cents. Um, I really like the 10 financial sins, by the way. I thought that was pretty powerful. Uh, can you give us some insights into that gap between you know, the, the, the perceptions and how people actually behave? I think that it applies to human behavior, not just financially, but otherwise the gap between sort of what people uh, say they want or say they will do and what they actually do in the moment of decision-making. Um, one area where I've seen a lot more studies and a lot more work in it is uh, in a slightly different realm. It's in like motivation and incentives and work. If you go to people and you say, what type of like bonus do you want or incentive program do you want? And you present them with a question. The universe will say, we want, give us money, right? Like if we hit this target, we'll sell these many cars, give us $5,000. That's what they say they want. But if you then go out and, and test it, it turns out that like non-monetary rewards are actually more powerful and more incentivizing. People prefer, oh, instead of $5,000 cash, give me and my family a trip to Hawaii for a week. But when we think about that money, when we're asked what we want, we, we say we prefer one thing, but then we actually prefer the other. Um, and one of the reasons for this uh, is that money is easy to measure. Um, it's easy to put things in monetary terms uh, and, and say what we want because it's, it's, there's fine, it's decimals, right? And other things like happiness and purpose and meaning are hard to measure. So we default to saying, oh, we want that money, we want that, that measurement there, or, or we think we know what we're going to do in terms of money. But when it comes to making the actual decision, these other things factor in, whether we feel um, uh, tempted, whether we feel a sense of purpose and meaning, um, you know, what, what else is going on in our busy day can impact us. We don't think about the decimals when the decision gets made. And if we think about it abstractly, like if you ask me, what am I going to do in a week? I think abstractly. But in that moment, I don't. So how would you advise those of us who are developing financial literacy courses because, or, or financial literacy education? Because that's, that's really what we do. And we know that knowledge is absolutely necessary to help people make better financial decisions. We're also learning that it's not sufficient. So what advice would you give us based on that observation and on those studies um, that show that different things motivate people to build into our programs that could maybe help people make that additional step from knowledge to action? Um, there are a lot of things that people have found that are effective, and I will, will do an insufficient job of, of addressing all of them, but some things that pop to mind um, are the the power of, of stories and, and concrete imagination to not just having you know teaching people hey you should put aside this percent of each paycheck but to putting them in that very moment when that decision is made and getting them to envision making that decision or getting them to envision the the impact that that decision will have in the future. Like you're putting this aside so you can send your baby girl to college. Like what does that look like? What is it going to look like the moment when you tell your girl, uh, hey, you can afford to go to college? Like what's that joy? What's that feeling? What's that emotion going to be? So you, you make the future, which often a lot of these financial decisions we make poorly are about sacrificing the future for the present. You make the future more concrete. You give it color. You give it depth. 
and then people connect to it more. Um, and, and there's ways to apply that. Like when people are doing retirement planning, it's not just uh, what's your risk aversion, but like what do you want your retirement to look like? Sit there and really imagine it. And okay, you want to have that be a reality? You want to connect to that? These are the steps you need to take. Um, so that's one big thing that you can help uh, people do to make better decisions is, is um, make that end goal more concrete and relatable and emotionally connected. Uh, and there are many others. I feel like I could, I could ramble on, but in, in many ways, I think that's the most uh, impactful. When you think about how people act about money, what you've learned, what would be the most surprising thing that you learned about human behavior mm. from working with Dan? There is this uh, principle that he calls uh, arbitrary coherence. And uh, what that is, is um, it's, a, it's a function of uh, what's known as anchoring, which many listeners probably have heard of. Anchoring is related to priming. Again, <laughs> moving a few steps away. But the idea that um, like a number, if you go into a car dealership and there's the manufacturer suggested retail price of $30,000 on a car, that you're anchored to that as the price of what the car should be. So you know, if someone offers it, if the dealer offers you for $28,000, suddenly you feel like, oh, compared to 30, that's a good thing. I'm, I'm anchored on 30 being the amount. Um, if you walk past a... Uh, a display in in a shoe store, and in the in the uh, window is a, you know a twelve hundred dollar pump, right? You would never buy that twelve hundred dollar pump. Maybe you would. I don't know, uh, but you probably wouldn't buy it. But then you go inside the shoe store, and in your mind, you're anchored that twelve hundred dollars is the price of shoes. And suddenly, you see like a three hundred dollar shoe, and compared to the anchor, it's not so bad. Um, so that's what anchoring is, is essentially like priming. And you see it all the time when you see like suggested retail price and these other things. Um, and what arbitrary coherence is, like th- that concept didn't really surprise me. But arbitrary coherence shows that like that anchor number can be totally random. So wh- what they did is they uh, asked people for the uh, last two digits in their social security number, which is randomly generated. Uh, and then they would uh, present to them some items that no one knew the price of, like a, a rare wine or some special chocolates or just stuff that they no, you couldn't know what it was worth. Um, and then they would say to them, okay, your last two digits, say they're 18, one and eight. Would you pay $18 for this wine? Yes or no? And then after that, okay, write down how much you would spend. And what they found is that if your numbers, your random numbers were high, like 91, you would spend much more than if your random numbers were lower. Just because you were like primed, you were anchored by these totally random, arbitrary numbers, and that to me was was shocking. It wasn't, you know, like the, uh, another car price. It was out of the air, uh, and it, it just shows the power of that suggestive element. How would we take that piece of knowledge, that observation, that proved observation, mm-hmm. and make that work for us, or is it? a matter of helping people understand what's happening so that they can consciously resist. One way to make it work for us is in the context of what's the financial behavior that we want to encourage, I think broadly speaking, saving and investing. So to the extent uh, you know you um, are, are sitting down with someone to make a financial decision, you know your, your peers are all saving 15% or 20% or whatever it is. You set that out there for a peer group that involves social, social proof and other things. Now, it's very important that you're not manipulative, that you're transparent, that you're not lying. But the point is by putting out a number like that and you then create sort of an expectation. You, you anchor someone to that idea. 
Um, that's one way to encourage good behavior. And then the other is sort of discouraging the bad behaviors, the bad decisions, which is essentially making people aware of that, that if you go into a place and you're seeing a bunch of numbers um, <laughs> related to the product or not in this case, like be aware, like don't make your try, – try to just be conscious of why you're making that value choice. Is it because that shoe is worth $300 or because compared to $1,200 it's better? Have you ever found that this has affected you? Do you look at your own kind of past behavior or current behavior and, uh, and see how these things work? And, and does, has it affected you? Has it changed you? Uh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I've, I've generally not had uh, great financial habits. I mean, I've, I've been a freelancer, a creative person most of my life. And so part of my issue, and this is a struggle probably from some realistic, is I don't have a steady income. It's easy when you have a steady income to adjust what percent goes where. So I've learned sort of some of my decision-making um, in terms of the income and then what I do with that. Um, I, I'm certainly more aware of what's going on when I make decisions, uh, and I still might make the less frugal choice, but I'm sort of conscious, and I sort of say, okay, that's I'm making a choice to do that. Um, like I talk about in the book and on stage, like our, our honeymoon, we prepaid for it. We paid more than we would have, but we decided, hey, it's worth – you know, X thousand, hundred dollars, whatever it is more, to just have a vacation free of worry of money. We decided to do that. It was my choice. So I, I'm, I'm more aware of the fact, the forces that are impacting my financial decisions. I still don't always make the right choice, but at least I'm aware of them. Tell us about a financial mistake in your glorious past and what you learned from it. Uh, that's, a, that's a question I have not been asked before. So congratulations. Uh, a a single financial mistake, <laughs> just um, a good turning, one. <laughs> I mean, there there are a number turning down um, a lot of job offers to be a, a corporate lawyer in order to pursue other careers. But then I, that was I think it was the right choice. Um, I had a uh, I had an IRA was an IRA it was a small like retirement account that was set aside started when I was young. Um, it had like ten thousand dollars in it, and I because of my choice I needed some money to cover expenses and I didn't want to go into credit major credit card debt so I closed that early and I took a penalty hit that I knew was there and I just didn't think about it um, and it ended up being I mean I didn't damage my credit in the sense that like my credit wasn't bad but it, financially it was a poor decision I don't remember the numbers exactly but say you know um, in the states at least there's a penalty if you close a you know retirement early. So maybe I, it was $10,000 and I got the $10,000, but then come tax day, I owed a $3,000 penalty. And it was just, it was, it was short-sighted and I knew I was being irresponsible, but I still did it anyway. And so what did you learn from that? Not to do that. <laughs> um, I learned uh, to respect that rules and these penalties are, are there for a purpose, and that is to make it so that you don't touch stuff that you shouldn't touch, um, that I should have found other ways to solve that problem. Uh, that credit card debt was is still probably a bad solution, but that I should have um, worked harder to find a solution that didn't involve touching that stuff I shouldn't touch. I wasn't in like crisis crisis. It wasn't like I'm going to be homeless if I don't do this. Um, and so I shouldn't have gone to those extremes. So what advice would you give to people who are developing courses to help people really make a difference in their day-to-day -day planning so that 
they're making those right decisions in terms of their long-term well-being. One of the things that's happened in Canada, and I think this is, is probably either true in the U.S. or or was probably more true to start with, um, is the move away from defined benefit to defined contribution pension plans. Mm -hmm. And so what that does is it removes all the onus on saving for your financial future from uh, employers and puts it on the on the shoulders right. of, of individuals. And people are not ready for that. And this, I guess, would be the 401k. Um, yeah. And we have registered retirement savings plans. What would you advise to make use of some of these behavioral insights that we've got to inspire people, to get people to be emotional um, about wanting to save for the future? You've talked about uh, the idea of making it concrete, of trying to mm -hmm. visualize their futures. Um, is there anything else that you could uh, um, advise to us as we're looking at our plans? Uh, there are a lot of different tools. Uh, one is, is about um, framing. Uh, and uh, there's a thing called loss aversion, that we feel a loss much more strongly than we feel uh, an equal gain, right? Losing $10 is only made up, that bad is only made up by gaining $20, the good of gaining $20. And how this impacts us is often we frame things. Like if you talk to someone um, about planning their future and you say, could you live on 80% of your income? More people will say yes than could you live on 20% less income? It's the same question. But it's just framed differently. One is a loss and one is not. And you, could, you can move that forward to the same moment now. You could say, hey, okay, we've, we've envisioned this future for you. We've created this like what your retirement looks like. In order to get there, you have to live now on 90% less than what you are. Could you live on 90%? Right now, could you exist on 90% less income? Right? So you're putting aside 10%. People are more likely going to say yes than if you said, okay, we've planned this future can you live now if we take away 10%? That's just a little, little tweak. Um, and, you know, it's it's a marginal increase, but, like, that framing can help people, like, it's not, you're not taking something from them. Um, similarly, uh, there's a move, a few organizations that, that I've worked with where it's not about um, saving money, it's about earning money. So, in other words, you put aside, you, you invest $100, uh, you're not saving $100. Think about your earning, all that interest that you gain, right? That $100 turns into whatever, $125. You're earning $25. And it's a much more um, proactive verb. It's less, you know, saving is very passive. Saving is taking away. Earning is, oh, I'm going to do something, right? It, it ignites that sense of self and purpose. Um, so you, you're earning money when you put it aside. Uh, you're, you know, people talk about like make your money work for you. It's the same sort of idea, like, you're earning money if you save it. So, so some of this is in the framing and the language. Um, and then there's just, you know, relying on tools like the default option, right? The default option, you give people a choice. Do you want to save for retirement? Uh, and you're not forcing them anything. But if the default option is yes, they're more likely to choose yes than if the default option is no. And, you know, when it comes to retirement savings, I think we can safely assume that in their best interest is to go yes. And when it comes to applying this stuff more broadly, and there's a big discussion in the behavioral community about, like, you don't want to trick people. You don't, you want to, you know, in order to use these what they call nudges, you have to design them for, be transparent, people can opt out, and it's for what you genuinely believe is the, the person's good. And in this case, all those three things are, are checked off. Um, so there's a couple things, the way you frame it, uh, making it the default option. 
Uh, and, you know, I mentioned on stage I have this delusion of somehow making saving sexy, right? Whether that's like making a bunch of, you know, grannies on a party boat videos or, uh, you know, just making it like a value to saving and understanding that it's – that is that is – it is more of a, a, a show of your strength um, and foresight as a person than spending it on frivolous stuff. It's like the concept of pay yourself first. Rather than saving, it's you're yeah. doing something really right. active, right, and exactly. uh, paying yourself first. That's great. Is there any interesting research underway right now that you know about that, that we're, you're sort of looking for the outcomes of or any interesting things that are being probed at? There's a ton of stuff. Uh, there's a paper that I'm looking at um, – about the impact of financial stress on uh, organizations, like so on companies, um, and how that's a stress as much as, as being unhealthy. And my hope with that is that if that is broadly understood, then companies will come back and, and be a force for educating and providing financial tools for their employees that it doesn't necessarily cost them, but it's not like giving them raises, it's just helping them be in a better place financially with what they have. And that's going to... and these studies will show how that impacts the the bottom line. I mean, unfortunately, a lot of people are motivated by the bottom line. So if you show, hey, your employees are less productive and they're they're more likely to make have accidents because they're stressed about money, and we all know how stress of any kind affects our focus, you can do these simple tools, financial education, to help them. With that. That's a study I think has great impact. Another one, which is much more like theoretical, um, is is there's a professor Hal Hirschfeld. Uh, out at UCLA and his, his peers are studying just like how we think about time. And this is going to be very um, theoretical, but just like having a different um, approach to decision making in terms of, of conceiving of time. Like you, you're confronted with a, a, a sweet dessert that you know you shouldn't eat. And a lot of us say, I can have that or I can not have that. Well, what if you think about, you, you take a 30,000 foot view and say, I can have that now or I can have that in a month. And just the the shift to our decisions and our view of our life in a more long-term sense. Um, and I, I'm not doing the paper justice, but it's really fascinating. There, It's a very theoretical, and it's also, I will readily admit, it's um, <laughs> at the moment it's, it's an idea that's for the privileged in that, like, thinking about time isn't something that someone who's living paycheck to paycheck and hustling is really going to be able to do. But from that, perhaps, will be tools, you know, 5, 10, 15 years down the line to help us. I know there's a lot of research being done right now um, on uh, the impact of stress. Mm-hmm. On and we've just um, we've been doing some work ourselves in that area and looking at, um, uh, for example, if you look at at companies that have EAPs, um, and you actually look under the hood a bit on on where the money's being spent. Mm-hmm. Um, Pushing sixty percent of it has actually has a financial uh, a financial component to it. It's really quite shocking, um, and there's there's data on on uh, how it affects absenteeism, presentism, yeah. all that kind of stuff. So I think that it's you know making that strong case for uh, workplace um, engagement is is a really important area to be in. I agree. How should people think about prioritizing financial decisions? When we look at our financial decisions, broadly speaking, there are three types of, of decisions. There's the little ones, like should I buy a newspaper today for $2, $5, whatever it is. There's the regular ones, like should I buy a coffee every morning? Should I pay $150 for cable every month? Um, you know, those things we subscribe to. And then there are the big ones. Should I buy this house? Should I buy this car? Should I choose this college? We often stress and worry the most about the little ones. And 
we don't think about the big ones because they're sort of overwhelming. And I would want to flip that on its head. Um, don't worry about the little ones. Buy the paper. Don't worry about it. Buy the piece of gum. Don't worry about it. Uh, the big ones. Those are the ones you got to stop and just slow down and take your time because all the little decisions, all the little dollars here and there never add up to a $400,000 home. And then it's those ones in the middle, those regular decisions, that coffee every morning that every financial course you know talks about. Don't stress about those. Think about them every now and then, right? Because what often happens is we pay for a coffee $5 one day, and the next day, instead of making the decision again, we look back at what we did yesterday. We're like, oh, I must have made the right choice, and we keep going. So every few months, whatever it is, look at your cable bill, look at your coffee, look at your newspaper subscription, and say, should I do this? Um, if it's right, okay, sure, or cancel one, right? And then let it go and don't worry about it. Because, again, the stress, like you can't be stressed about every little thing. Um, and you can't be stressed all the time about the everyday decisions. You want to enjoy your life. Every now and then, check on the regular ones and, and really focus on those big ones. You have been listening to Mastering Money, the Educator's Edition, from Chartered Professional Accountants of Canada. For more information and resources, visit our website at cpacanada.ca slash financial literacy. For more episodes, visit us on iTunes, Google Play, or Podbean. Podbean.